All right, please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation 1. We are here, finally, coming to the actual exposition of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the exposition proper, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, and walking through the entire letter. The people of God have always been blessed with prophecy. The revelation of the dealings of God with mankind for the purpose of validating God's word and motivating God's people unto obedience. Much of this prophecy, the church of Jesus Christ looks back upon, seeing the clear links between Old Testament declarations of the prophets and the New Testament fulfillments, many of which are realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. Yet there is still so much in the Bible that has been taught that is yet to be realized. And the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ fills this uh, divine prophetic gap which God desires to be filled, leaving us with a general picture of His plan from this time to the consummation of all things. But even more importantly than just giving us his plan, he is giving us insight, a deeper picture into himself. And this is the reality that confronts us in Revelation chapter 1 in the introduction to the epistle. We're just looking at verses 1 through 6. Uh, I'm hoping not to get too bogged down in the first several chapters. However, there's so much information. Typically speaking, when I start a book, things start out a little bit slow because there's so much to talk about at the beginning, and then they kind of pick up a pace as they go along. Uh, the, the latter half or the latter portion of the book will be at a faster pace, stopping almost topically at times to talk about various things such as the rapture or um, what is uh, Mystery Babylon. You'll spend some time on that. And those will be uh, in the text, but also somewhat topical as we branch out to many different passages of Scripture, trying to bring Scripture to bear with Scripture to understand the whole. But as we begin the revelation of Jesus Christ, in chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says this, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant." John. We've mentioned several times now in our lead up to the book itself, but it is important to understand that the letter is introduced as the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this can be taken one of two ways, both of which are entirely valid uh, in the text. Uh, one way that we can take it is the revelation which is by Jesus Christ. The revelation which is by Jesus Christ. Uh, and we'll see that this is quite clearly the case, at least particularly for chapters 1, 2, and 3. We see that Jesus is the messenger uh, who is giving these words, after which we'll see various other angelic messengers uh, who we know quite clearly are not Jesus Christ himself um, that, that um, will we'll give portions of this message. We can also take from it, however, the idea of the revelation of Jesus Christ himself, that Jesus Christ will be revealed through his, these pages, his character, his works, and then most certainly his coming. 
It is the revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ rather than just the revelation by Jesus Christ. And I believe both of these are very valid. I've told you throughout uh, the introduction to the series that there is, I want to emphasize this idea that, that the, the prophetic accounts of, re, of the revelation of Jesus Christ are revealing to us Jesus Christ. Certainly he will be revealed and we're learning about when he is revealed. And I don't want to take away from that. But as we'll see in just a few moments, John presents this book as a book of instruction, not just a book of information, which means we ought to be able to take that which this book is telling us and draw it out to our lives today and draw out from it understanding for today. And much of that drawing will be drawing out the very character of our Lord, drawing out the very essence of who he is and, and his love and his justice and his mercy and his wrath and all of these elements of his character brought together. Both of these ideas that I've presented about the revelation of Jesus Christ are actually presented in other portions of Scripture. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, we read this, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, here we see the same exact phrase, both in the English and the Greek, telling us that Paul did not receive his understanding of theology and Scripture from being taught by another man, but rather he received his understanding of theology and Scripture by being taught directly from Jesus Christ himself. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation given or taught by Jesus Christ. And so we see precedent for this idea that the revelation of Jesus Christ means this is revelation which is given by Christ himself. But there's also precedent for the other way. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ himself breaches the clouds and he reveals himself to man, uh, that idea being that he's not, not that he's going to come down and, and explicitly sit and teach, but rather that his very presence is his revelation. We are going to see him and know him as he is. We are going to understand him in a new and a different way because he has revealed himself to us. And so both of these ideas are valid when we talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ. The idea of Jesus doing the teaching supported in part by chapter 1, where we find Jesus appearing to John and telling him the things which he sees. We see chapters 2 and 3, uh, Jesus himself is speaking to the seven churches of Revelation, telling them uh, their commendations as well as telling them uh, their faults and rebuking them for those. However, the rest of the book, as I mentioned, we see various other angelic messengers who, when John attempts to fall down and worship them, the messenger says, don't worship me. I'm a being just as you. I'm created just as you. I am not worthy of worship. And so we recognize that it is not necessarily, uh, while it's all the teaching by Christ, by the Holy Spirit of God, uh, we, we recognize those things, that the scriptures are inspired, that it is all God's word, um, that, that direct flavor is not there throughout the whole book. And this is why I believe we can take it both ways. That we're not just talking about the revelation by Jesus Christ, but we're talking about Jesus Christ being revealed. A revelation of the works which will take place. A revelation of the works which he will commit. 
a full unfolding of his person, that on the day of the Lord, when that day comes, the world will know Jesus in a way that they had not known him before. That when he left, he left as the lamb. When he comes back, he's coming back as the lion. The veiled characteristics of Jesus' deity and power from his first advent upon earth will be wholly unveiled. That, that little glimpse of, of Christ's full deity that G Peter, James, and John saw at the transfiguration will be magnified to its fullest degree when Jesus breaks through the clouds and his feet touch the Mount of Olives again. And the purpose of telling us what will happen as we walk through this book is so that we can learn now through prayerful reading in order that we don't have to learn then through the terrifying unfolding of events. This book is truly the revelation of who Jesus is, not just what Jesus will do. So then the word revelation itself is the Greek word uh, apocalypsis, which is the word by which we get our word apocalypse. We see it 18 times in the New Testament. All speak of the declaration of events either as they are occurring or as they will occur. The unfolding of events, the disclosure of truth, the bearing out, laying bare of events. We've come in our time and language to use the word to describe the book of, of Revelation or, or a select set of books where there's a general disclosure of future events. So when I have told you throughout that portions of Daniel are apocalyptic or portions of Ezekiel are apocalyptic, when somebody tells you that a portion of Scripture is apocalyptic, what they're telling you is that it's dealing with the unfolding of future events. It's dealing with prophecy. Now, when we think of the apocalypse today in our culture, it's been brought to mean just destruction, right? And indeed, a part of apocalyptic literature is destruction. But as we have even been exhorted throughout our preliminary series, and we'll be continuing to exhort throughout the series, the point of the revelation of Jesus Christ is not as much destruction as it is rescue. The focus is not everything is going to be destroyed, it's save yourself, flee to Christ, identify this, the, the means of salvation and run to it. Save yourself is not a good way to put that, is it? Flee to Christ. If you know that this is coming, identify salvation and flee to it. It's a book of salvation, far more than it's a book of destruction. It, accounts, it, it recounts destruction in order to compel salvation. Now we find in the text that it says these things must shortly come to pass. We must take what we've learned about prophecy and interpretation of prophecy to heart here. There are two theories about what this means. First, some people believe it means that once the events begin, they will take place in short order. They will come one right after another. Uh, this is kind of the idea of, of pushing someone on a sled down a sled hill, right? Once you get someone going, it's not stopping until it reaches the bottom of the hill. And even if the sled stops, the person on is probably not stopping, right? The, or, or if the person stops, the sled's going to continue on. The idea being that, that things must shortly come to pass. They will come to pass one after another in quick su succession once they begin. This is that first idea. The second idea, which actually fits more with both context and the, the language being used, is that these things are going to happen soon. That they will come to pass quickly. 
Now, the problem with this interpretation, naturally, is that these words were written 2,000 years ago, right? And 2,000 years is not a short amount of time when we think about ourselves. Uh, we, you know, we, we live 70, 80, 90 years, somewhere in that span, and that's, that's not... That's a lot of years to us. And so 2,000 years is a, is, is, a, is a whole lot of years to us. But remember the difference between God's perception of time and our perception of time. I do believe it's the second idea. Surely I come quickly. These things must shortly come to pass. I do believe it's the idea of these things are coming soon. And I believe this based upon how we have studied prophecy and what prophecy has meant to us as we've worked through it. Again, this is why I laid that foundation, uh, uh, literally a three-month foundation for the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So that when I tell you that God, that timing to God is not timing to us, and prophecy to God, uh, the way God views prophetic events unfolding is not how we view prophetic events unfolding in this linear sort of a fashion that we live in. Uh, the reason why I can say that and feel confident that you can at least understand where I'm coming from is because I spent three months telling you these things. If we think about the unfolding of God's plan, for both the Gentile world kingdoms and the nation of Israel, uh, both contents unfold in, in, in a successive way. Remember this chart that I gave you from Daniel's chapter 2 and um, uh, Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, where we considered God's prophecy of the kingdoms. We had Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome, then the divided kingdoms uh, of the end times, which are, are indeed an extension of Rome, and then the kingdom of God. When we look at these, within this context, each kingdom is successively one after another, and each kingdom rolled over into the next in what we would call historically short order. It's the same when we were talking about the 70 weeks of Israel. When we were talking about the 70 weeks of Israel, our lives and minds, ever bound by time, know that we exist in the period between the 69th and 70th week, and thus far, that period between the 69th and 70th week has spanned about 2,000 years of history. But when God gives the vision, just like He gave the vision of the kingdoms, and the kingdom of God was directly, and the, 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 the divided kingdom, those were directly after the Roman Empire. In the same way, when God gives His prophetic vision of the 70 weeks, he gives the 70th week directly after the 69th. And so while we, as people ever bound by time, are looking at things and saying there's been 2,000 years since this prophecy, there's been 2,000 years since the, uh, the, since the promise that things would come to pass shortly, so it certainly must not mean that. If we are taking God's prophetic plan and, and laying it out, It's the next thing. Right after the, the legs of iron are the feet of iron and the toes of iron and clay. That's the tribulation. Right after the 69th week is the 70th week. And if God presented them in this successive sort of a way, then could we understand that God, who is not bound by time, as he sees prophecy, he says, this next prophecy is, is, is the next thing. So it's coming. That's the idea here. To this end, we might not be surprised, based upon our study of prophecy, that from a divine biblical perspective, these events are said to shortly come to pass. 
There is no prophetic event that stands between us today and the events of the end times. The last uh, heavily prophesied event would have been uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, as far as these, uh, the, the 70 weeks of Daniel are concerned. And then after that, there is nothing else that stands in prophecy's way. To us, this makes the events of the scriptures what we call imminent. To God, it means they're just around the corner. They will come quickly. And this is what God, I believe, signified to John by his angel. Now again, if we want to say that these things will come in short successive order, one right after another, once they begin, uh, linguistically, that's not uh, improper. It's just not as natural of an interpretation of the text. The one to whom these visions are given is this man named John the Apostle. It's the same man who wrote the Gospel of John. It's the same man who wrote the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. His title in the Gospel of John, that he, he, he did not mention his name once in the Gospel of John. It's one of his characteristics. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one of the twelve. More than just one of the twelve, he was also one of the inner three. Jesus would often take three of the twelve with him. He took three of the twelve with him to the transfiguration. He took three of the twelve with him deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying the night he was betrayed. Both of those times, the three that he took were Peter and the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee being James and John. This is that John. This is, by the way, not John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist uh, died early on in Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist is not John the Apostle. They are two different people. This is John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. John was perhaps the most intimately connected with Jesus. As Jesus hung on the cross, according to the Gospel of John, Jesus actually gave the responsibility of caring for his mother to John. And so John was very closely connected as he was entrusted with Mary's well-being after Jesus' death. He's also the apostle given the privilege of writing the gospel that is most belief-focused, the gospel of John, which John testifies, these things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye may have life through his name. In regard to this man, we read in verse 2, who bear record of the word of God, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw. In verse 2, we find a statement of three things which, of, of which John bore record. And I believe within these three things, we actually see a template of John's entire ministry. This is not something, uh, this is just something that I've drawn out. You can take it or leave it. But, but it, he says that he bore record, first, of the word of God, second, of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and then third, of all things that he saw. Uh, as we consider the way John uh, regards the concept of the word of God, you'll notice here our King James translators did not, tra uh, did not capitalize the W there. They believe that it's speaking of the scriptures, that he bore record of the scriptures. The parallel that I'm seeing, I would capitalize that W. And I would say that he's speaking here of Jesus Christ himself, that he bore record of the word of God, of the incarnation of God. We go back to John chapter one, verse one, and the Bible says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And John regularly called Jesus the word of God. In John 1, 14, he said, and the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So we see the idea that John is 
was very comfortable calling Jesus the Word of God. He would say the same thing in 1 John 5, 7, and 8, that there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, right? So that idea of, of John calling Jesus the Word is not uncommon. Now, uh, it can be the Scriptures, and certainly even to divide Jesus from the Scriptures is kind of a synthetic division, right? Because Jesus is, I mean, the scriptures are the essence of who Jesus is, and Jesus is the incarnation of God's expression to man. And so it's, it's almost a, a false, false dichotomy, if I could put it that way. However, uh, bear with me here in, in calling this word of God Jesus and the life of Jesus himself, because I see, a, I see a pattern. Second, he says he bore record of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, you can see in the two words I gave you in the Greek there, um, I always, you know, I, I highlight the word I'm, I'm, I'm translating and, and then in the right order. You'll notice that bare record is martyreo and testimony is martyria. It's the same word. It's just one of them is in the verb form and the other one is in a noun form. And so both of these are bare record. So he bore record, he bore record of the word of God and then he bore record of Jesus's bearing of record, right? Of Jesus's testimony. And then third, it says that he bore record of all things that he saw, not only um, Jesus Christ and not only what Jesus Christ testified, but also the things which he saw. What I see here, the parallel that I see here is actually the, a summary of John's ministry to the church. That as he bore record of the word of God, he wrote down that record in the gospel of John. That as he bore record of the testimony of Jesus Christ, he wrote down that in the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then as he wrote down all the things which he saw, he bears record of that in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the things which are coming. So this is what I believe John is saying here. I believe he's saying here that, that, through the, that God has given John the unique and distinct privilege among the apostles to be one to bear record of Jesus' life, Jesus' commands to the church and the fulfillment, the consummation of, of Jesus' revelation of his coming. And to that end, John was truly privileged as an author of the words of God. The introduction finishes in verse 3. He says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John confers the first of seven blessings that we'll see given throughout the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. This first blessing, John says, is upon the one who reads and hears and keeps the things written therein. And why? Well, because the time is at hand. It's coming quickly. Again, one of the reasons why I believe when he says that these things must shortly come to pass by God's perspective, they are just around the corner. Now, I really want to take a moment and consider the impact and the import of what Jesus is writing here. I mean, John is writing here. Many Christians, as I've mentioned already, approach the book of the Revelation as a book of information. That whether you believe that we will be a part of these events or whether you don't believe that we'll be a part of these events, whether you believe that we'll be raptured out before they begin or whether you believe that we won't be, either way, we, we approach this book, generally speaking, as a book that is informing us of things. To that end, uh, Revelation is, is approached perhaps 
um, more than any other book in a very academic light. But you can't keep information. You can't obey information. You, you learn information. And as John writes here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he gives this blessing, he is writing and giving a blessing to those who keep this information, who, who obey the things that are written therein. Who read, hear, and keep. What that means for us is that John did not see this book as a book of just information. He saw this book as a book of instruction. And that means we should see it as a book of instruction as well. As we focus in on this book, information is great. And unfortunately, your pastor loves information so much that you might lose... I like to pour it into your heads, right? And that, that can become almost overwhelming sometimes. And the one thing I don't like about that is I don't want to distract us. Christians today know more than Christians in any other age about the Bible. We have resources at our disposal that wise men of years gone by would have loved to have. I can, I can be more efficient in my research through a computer program. I even have one on my phone. I can be more efficient in my researching of the academic elements of the Bible. I can, at my fingertips, have a thousand years, two thousand years of church literature and history that can be aggregated in seconds, and I can just pull out the, the meaningful stuff. I don't have to flip through thousands of pages of information to find what I'm looking for. I don't have to know the Greek and the Hebrew. I don't have to have these things because it's all at my fingertips now. We're in the age of Google, right? I don't have to know things anymore. I just have to know how to find things. But for all that knowledge, for all of that instruction, our church is not good at obeying in this age. And the reason is because we are in an age that feels as though knowledge is a proper replacement for obedience. That as long as I know stuff, that's enough. <clears throat> knowledge has never been enough with God. Knowledge has it's never been enough just to know stuff. So we need to be careful with knowledge. And I don't want to... That, that doesn't mean we did, and, and this, is, this is the other end of that, right? The pendulum swings the other way, and then we have the people that discard knowledge. So they say, no, I don't need to know that. No, I don't need to know anything. No, I don't need to read anybody. No, I don't need to hear opposing views. Just me and my Bible, and that's, that's, that's enough. And, and indeed it can be, because the Holy Spirit is our teacher. But we need to find a balance, right? As I've told you many times, if you see a perspective of the church that's here, and you see a perspective of the church that's here, and it's swinging back and forth. If you want to find God, you'll find, you generally find, generally find him right about here. Because God is a God of balance. And we are people of, we're reactionary. We're reactionary. We're, we're, we're pendulum swingers. Something, in, we, we, we live on this side and we love it, and then something offends us. And so we just swing to the other end. And now we hate it, and we love it, and, and then, and, and we're just... Generation to generation, we're just swinging. We're just... And James calls us being driven with the wind and tossed. We need to not be that way. And so I, I'm going to give you a lot of information. But let us not lose sight 
in the midst of all the information that we get that this book is intended to be read, heard, and obeyed, kept, which means there's something in here of instruction for us to glean. I'm going to skip a, a couple of slides here. And I just want to land for a moment on Luke 11. We'll, we'll be coming back to this point. Luke 11:28. for those of us that have been in the Luke series, Jesus says this, Rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. We're going to come back to that. But first, let's talk about the audience of this book. The Bible says, John, verse 4, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So this letter is addressed to the seven churches in Asia. And it does say these seven churches which are in Asia. There were certainly more than just these seven churches in Asia. Now, typically speaking, if I were to ask you for a country in Asia, you would give me something like China or Russia or India. But Asia actually comprises significantly more than that. Asia is a continent that spans from the Pacific Ocean down through the islands above Australia and west through the Middle East. Iran, Syria, Iraq, these are all in Asia. And the seven churches in Asia, we will find, are all populated an area which is what we would call today Western Turkey. We'll consider this in greater depth as we talk through the seven churches. It will be a couple of weeks, and then we'll go through the churches in, in significantly more detail, and we'll show you where each one is and the distinctions of each place and such. Now, these are literal, functioning, autonomous local churches that existed at the time. It's important to understand, John is writing to functioning, literal, autonomous, local churches. They were chosen as recipients of this message, however, for a very specific purpose. Uh, they were not the largest churches of the day, though particularly the Church of Smyrna uh, would be uh, very influential at a time, and the Church of Ephesus would be very influential at a time. Uh, they were not, however, the most influential churches of the day. If we were looking for those, um, certainly the Church of Antioch would be on this list. Uh, we might understand the Church of Corinth to be on this list, and probably the Church at Rome as well. But each church had something that Jesus wanted to highlight, and it will be our privilege to discover the importance of those messages as we walk through chapters 2 and 3. And of course, lest we be remiss, Anytime you find the number seven in your Bible, it should perk your interest. The, the number seven is oftentimes used quite literally, but it is also a very important metaphorical number. It's a number, uh, the number of God, the number of completion. Uh, it's the number that, while oftentimes, again, literal, there were literally seven churches being written to here, uh, that number of seven also has the idea of perfection, and to that end, we'll, we'll see it again in a moment, to that end, we should recognize here that as God presents a letter to seven churches, there is a perfecting element, a perfection idea in some context that needs to come up. We'll talk about what that might be. It'll be significantly down the road, but we'll get there. 
We also find in this verse, verse 4, the beginning of what we call in theology a doxology. A doxology, we actually have a hymn in our Bible called the doxology, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's the doxology, as we would call it. But a doxology is simply a, a short hymn of praise unto God. And we see this doxology in verses 4 and 5, so I'm going to read you both again. The Bible says this, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins into his own blood. So we see just the tail end of that doxology there, and we'll get there in just a moment. But we also see some other elements of this. We see that this message is by John to the seven churches, and then we have our author, our messenger. From whom? From whom? Well, first, the Bible says it's from him which is, and which was, and which is to come. Now, as we walk through the revelation of Jesus Christ, this phrase, which is, which was, which is to come, is most regularly used of Jesus Christ, teaching us that Jesus Christ, like the Father, is eternal. But in this case, we, it is most certainly talking about the Father. How do we know that? Well, because we see this phrase from Him, which was and is and is to come, and then from the seven spirits, and then from the faithful witness and first begotten of the dead. That's Jesus Christ. So as we see these three persons that it's from, the first one's the Father, the second is the Spirit, and the third is the Son. In other words, the, the, the whole of the Trinity is compelling us unto this message. God is the one who is whom He is. He introduced Himself to the nation as the great I Am. He is the Ancient of Days, the Father, the one who was and is and who is to come. Then it says, from the seven spirits which are before His throne... This would be the Holy Spirit. Now we mentioned again this number seven. In this case, we would not explicitly believe seven to be literal, that the Holy Spirit is seven distinct spirits, but rather figurative, that summing up the, that the Holy Spirit himself is, is the fullness of the Spirit, the perfection of the Spirit, the wholeness of the Spirit, the seven spirits that are before his throne. And then third, from Jesus Christ, presented in three ways. First is the faithful witness. Witness of what? Witnessing of the word of God. First John, uh, John 1, 9 says Jesus is the true light. John 6, 32 says Jesus is the true bread from heaven. John 8, verse 14 says that his record is true. John 8, 16 says that his judgments are true. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, John 1 verse 18 says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten of, uh, Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. By the way, in, in the Greek there, that means Jesus has declared the Father. John 6 46, Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Jesus is the declaration of God. He is the faithful witness of of the will of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, the Bible says that Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That would be the Father's person. And upholding all things by the word of his power. 
Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory. Jesus is the express image of the Father's person. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's also the first begotten of the dead. Having just come out of Resurrection Sunday, we can certainly appreciate the idea that Jesus is the first begotten of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul uses the phrase first begotten in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, in Colossians 1, verse 15 and 18, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, all of them telling us that Jesus is that first begotten of the dead, that first fruits of the resurrection, the first to arise. Now, it's important to understand that by calling him the first begotten, just like when he's called the only begotten in John 3, this does not demand that Jesus was created as a person. It's not a statement of physical creation, but rather if we can, spiritual creation or judicial creation. That through the resurrection, Jesus earned the title Son of God. I've proved that one to you before. Jesus was, became the only begotten Son of God at his resurrection. That Jesus became the first begotten of the dead when he arose from the dead. Though he could call himself the only begotten Son of God from time immemorial because it was set in stone from the beginning, he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, he actually achieved the title, only begotten Son, at his resurrection. He actually achieved the title, the first begotten of the dead, at his resurrection. And because, of course, Jesus lives, so too can we. Jesus was and had to be the first in time to be raised from the dead into an eternal body fitted for an eternal existence. And Jesus' resurrection into an eternal body is the first of three such resurrections. The first resurrection was Jesus' resurrection. The second resurrection is the resurrection at the just, of the just, seen at his second coming. The third resurrection is the resurrection of the unjust after the millennium. All three resurrections are taught in Scripture, the last two founded upon the first, that being the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the third and final description of Jesus that we see here is that he is the prince of the kings of the earth. This is uh, essentially quoting from Psalm 89, verse 27, where prophetically the Bible says, also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. That Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and the only begotten of God naturally gives way to the reality that he will be exalted higher than the kings of the earth. He is called King of Kings and he is called Lord of Lords. Now it's interesting that he is called here the Prince of the Kings of the Earth. Oftentimes when we think of a prince, we think of him as lower in authority than the king, right? Why would he be called the Prince of the kings of the earth. Now, that word prince in the Greek simply means chief ruler. It's a fine print translation, though, to use the word prince, though it might throw us off a little bit. The reason why it would seem the King James translators chose prince, and of course they were working on this at a time where, where um, a monarchy would make more sense, right? We, we don't really have much to relate to in a monar monarchical sense today because we have never lived under a monarchy. However, the idea here is that while Jesus is going to be king, he's not quite king yet. He is a chief ruler, but he is heir apparent to the throne. He is heir apparent to the kings of the earth. He is the one who is coming to be king, but he has not yet claimed his throne. And so they use the word prince there to highlight the reality that while Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, he has not yet claimed his rightful place. 
So he's not yet king of kings. He is prince of kings, if we will, as it were. And that's what they were going for there with that translation. And as I mentioned, this is the point where we roll over into the doxology. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Verse 6. Unto him that uh, uh, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Three declarations are made concerning Jesus' works here. And have you noticed how many times three has come up? The threefold person of God is writing this, the Father, then the Spirit, then the Son. The threefold character of Christ that was given as well, that he was given as the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. And now a threefold work of Christ on our behalf unto him that loved us, number one. Loved us before we knew him. It was that love that drove him to the cross. Before we'd even had a chance to offend him, he died for us. So that 1 John 4.19 might be made a reality in our lives that we love him because he first loved us. Second, he that washed us from our sins in his own blood. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22 reminds us there is no remission of sin. Jesus suffered and died that we might live. And all who recognize the love of Christ as exhibited on the cross and receive that love are washed from their sins. He has loved us in that he came. He has washed us from our sins in his own blood in that he died. And he hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Once washed by grace through faith, we are made co-heirs with Christ's promises so that we can know that we will rule and reign with Him, sharing in His dominion. And His dominion is forever and ever, which means our glory is forever and ever. Our glorification is forever and ever, for we are in Christ. Now, I could devote entire sermons to each of these, each member of the Trinity, each element of the character of Christ, each work that Christ has done on our behalf. But that's not the point of the text. This is a doxology. The point is to draw us unto these things so that we might understand the praise of God. So that we might be overwhelmed almost. If you're, if you're, if you're slightly overwhelmed with, with, with thinking about, I don't know, when I think about being able to preach, could, I could preach on the Trinity and the elements of the character of Christ and the work of Christ. We could spend mo- more, several more months on that. That overwhelming amount of of the reality of Christ and of his work and what he's done for us ought to lift you up unto this doxology. To him be glory and dominion forever. It ought to raise us to the skies with him and make us in that state of overwhelming awe, make us love him all the more. Which brings us back to blessed is he that reads and hears and keeps this book. So we apply today. And I'd like to go in two somewhat distinct directions with our application. Point number one, as we seek for the instruction in our book, number one, remember that these things must shortly come to pass. Let us be ever vigilant, brethren, careful to understand that these things are coming soon. The church age is a mystery begun 47 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and ending, we would believe, before the events of Revelation chapter 4. 
The church age is historically essential to God's plans and purposes on this earth, but it is prophetically irrelevant to what is about to begin. At some point in the days to come, the gears of prophecy are going to begin to turn in a brand new way. And what is that supposed to do for us? What is it supposed to do for us when we see the, the, the birth pains of the tribulation? What is it supposed to do for us when we see the earthquakes in diverse places and the wars and rumors of wars? What is it supposed to do for us when we start seeing a very real application of a one world government? Uh, when we see a very real application of uh, worldwide communication, of worldwide commerce, when we see these things coming unfolding in a way that no other generation perhaps ever has been able to conceive before, what should those things do to us when we understand this, this reality that these things must shortly come to pass? Well, it's supposed to give us an urgency, a fire. For what? I think Jude describes it well. It's only one chapter to Jude, but in Jude 1, verses 20 to 23, the Bible says this, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and if some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. In faith, we are to rest in the love of God. We are to look for the mercy of our Lord and His return. That's what we do here every week. This is why the assembling of the saints as, as taught in the Scriptures is so important. Because we are here to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. You go out into the world and, and you fight that battle all week. You live among unbelievers. You work among unbelievers. Many of your neighbors are unbelievers and you, you go out into the world and you're supposed to go out, of, out into the world. That's what God wants you to do. But then we come together and we build ourselves up in our most holy faith. We keep ourselves in the love of God. We help one another stay in the love of God. We exhort one another to look for the mercy of God at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And while we wait, we engage. Of some, the Bible says, have compassion, making a difference. That word difference in the text means distinction. That in compassion to the world around us, we are to show ourselves distinct from the world around us. That while the unbeliever lives for this world, we have an entirely different plane upon which we live, an entirely different way of thinking, an entirely different set of priorities. Now, that's not going to mean that we always look different from the world around us. My different way of thinking and different priorities is not necessarily going to mean that I'm not going to go do the things that other people would do on a daily basis. I'm still going to go shopping. I'm still going to have a house some cars, still going to need clothes, still going to want to enjoy foods and amusements and entertainments. It doesn't mean that, that we have to reject material things. But while we may not always look different from the world, we should always be distinct. That whereas the world buys that thing because they are looking for fulfillment in that thing, that is absolutely not our motivation for buying that thing. 
that while the world is doing things to look a certain way and to claim a certain status and to have a certain lifestyle, that is not why we do what we do. That our motivation is on a different plane. That we are going to rejoice in the blessings that the Lord has given to us and we are going to enjoy the things of this life while holding them loosely because they are not the things of the life that is to come. Because they are the things that are temporal, not eternal. We live on a different plane. We have compassion on people by making a difference, by having a distinction about us. While the unbeliever lives under the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we are free to serve God. While the unbeliever lives to please himself, we are determined to please the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And we live out these realities in compassion. What does that mean? That means I'm not sitting in my ivory tower, turning up my nose and looking down at those who don't live the way I live and, and, and judging them. That I am not sitting on my throne, towering over the peasants and saying, oh, if only you knew what I knew and have what I have and are what I am. That we're not as the, public, as, as the Pharisee and the, and the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, whose prayer consisted of, Lord, thank you I am not as this publican who is a sinner. Thank you that I am not like him. That's not compassion. It's pride. We have compassion in our distinction. Wanting nothing more than that the grace and peace which you have found in Christ might be able to be found among those who are aching for it. That the contentment that you have with such things as you have might be able to be realized in those who are seeking to fill their lives with contentment by stuff or by relationships or by position in life. They're not going to find the contentment there. And when you see people that are scrambling for it, it should cause you to long for their peace. You should ache for them. Not because you're better than them, but because you found in Christ what you would love for them to have as well. When you see so many angry... We're, this nation is so angry right now. You should well up with compassion for these angry people. They wake up angry. They go to bed angry. We, we don't... You shouldn't be living that way. I hope you're not living that way. Christ... Christ is coming. You're in Him. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. He has dominion and power already. We don't have to live that way. Contention and anger and anxiety and fear. But it shouldn't cause you to turn your nose up at those that are living that way. It should cause love, compassion, a desire to pull them out. There's another group, however. There's a group that looks at us living in compassionate distinction, and the design is that they would look at you and say, I don't know what you have, but I want it. What do you have that I don't? How can you live in such joy in the midst of circumstances? How can you be this way? Well, it's not because of me. It's simply because I have a, a God in heaven who's in control, and I have a, 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 a God in heaven who has said that he'll take care of me, 
He's going to take care of the government. He's going to take care of interpersonal relationships. He's going to take care of my needs. He's going to take care of my wants. He's told me that I will lack for nothing if I am... Uh, if I am following his word, if I am loving him, if I am obeying him, he's told me that I can trust him and, and I believe it. But there's a second group. There's a group that uh, compassionate distinction will not be enough. Among certain people, compassionate distinction makes them hate you, not want to be like you. We'll talk about that more in, in, in uh, the, the churches. Unto them, Jude says others, we need to save with fear. Pulling them out of the fire. Crying out and warning for them to escape the wrath that is to come. We go out into the culture. We don't become like the culture. We live in compassionate distinction from the culture. We reject the contamination of this world. We are leading others in that way, but then we are also called to call people out. Because the end of their road is fire, is destruction, if they do not change their ways. And so we see in this the two distinct elements of evangelism. Both are important. The first is living a clear, consistent, unhypocritical Christian life. And that becomes our first question this morning. Do unbelievers see a distinction in you? Are you living in distinction from the world around you? Or would no one ever know if they dug down to your motivations, your intentions, your thoughts, your fears, your, 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 your way of thinking, would they ever know? Unfortunately, one of the biggest problems in the church today is that the church has been so inundated by the world that when somebody comes into a church and they hear you say, you, that, that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that He's redeemed us, they only see, they, the only thing they can understand of that is heaven and hell because there's nothing else in our lives that would make them want to be a believer. We've got the same anxieties. We've got the same anger. We've got uh, the cliques that, that we're, we're bickering one against another. We have the, the, all, all of the same problems in our households. Our children don't look any different. Our children don't act any different. We don't look any different. We don't act any different. We don't think any different. We're still laughing at the jokes. We're still, we're, we're, we're into the same entertainment. There's no distinction. Why would we be surprised then when someone says, okay, so the difference is between you and me, you say that you're a Christian and I'm not, or you're in Christ, you're a born again believer and I'm not, and the difference is you have to go to church and you give money to the church and I don't see much else. And then you say you're going to go to heaven and I'm not. That's all, that, if, if that's all they see, and this is all a lot of the unbelieving world sees, in the, I'm not saying this church, I'm saying the church at large. And we're failing because we're not distinct, because they see no difference. And that's because there is no difference if we're caught up in the world and we're stuck in the world's way of thinking and the world's way of doing things. Could a person being ravaged by sin emotionally or spiritually ever see in your manner of living joy, look at your outlook on life and say, this is exactly what I need? Or would they hear the way you talk and see the things you do and, and think and your 
emotional and the whole state of you and you're in the same struggles and you have the same hopelessness and you, you, you have to pursue the exact same solutions and it's as if God is in our mouths but not in our actions. And shame on us if we're not living distinction. I'm not talking about hyperpiety. I'm not talking about judgmentalism. I'm not talking that we have to reject everything that material that the world has to offer. None of that. You, I, I hope you know I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, God has called us to be distinct. Are we being distinct? Second element of evangelism, saving others with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Some people have never even stopped to think that maybe someday they're going to die and face judgment. Some people have never even stopped to think that maybe the reason why you are what you are, maybe the reason why you are distinct is because you have something they don't. Some people need to be pursued. Some people need you to look them in the eye and tell them that they are on the wrong side of God's wrath. And if they don't make it right, they are going to be doomed. So we pull them out of the fire by boldly proclaiming truth. And that for this reason, while we may not understand this, we can still know it as sure as we know anything, you would not wish hell upon your worst enemy. There's not a man or a woman in this, on this earth. And, and I know that you can think of some men and women that, that you'd struggle with this concept. But I guarantee you, on the authority of the scriptures, that when, when you step on, into the, through the veil to the other side of eternity, if God, by chance, gives you, an un, gives you the ability to comprehend in any way, shape, or form what hell and the lake of fire are, are like, you would cry out to everybody that's on this side of the veil and say, you would not wish it on your worst enemy. You don't want anyone there. Nobody should have to be there. Nobody should have to go through that. The very worst person you can think of, while hell might be exactly what they have asked for and earned, you would not wish it upon your worst enemy. And it, it is this fear that we save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, having compassion on them, making a difference, and some saving with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that is spotted by the flesh, maintaining that distinction all throughout. These things must shortly come to pass. A second point, and I apologize for the... It's not a problem... Uh, I, I normally put the verses I'm going to pursue at the end and then I didn't delete them. Uh, that second point, though, as a reminder, blessed are they who read and hear and keep instruction. Those of you who have been walking through the book of Luke, I already took you to Luke 11 this morning. I'd like to take you to Luke 8. Jesus is giving the parable of the seed and the sower and he says this, When much people were gathered together, there came unto him out of every city. He spake by a parable a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock. As soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And others fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit an hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears, let him hear. Jesus gives the parable of the seed and the sower. 
and at the end he exhorts us to hear, he would go on to interpret this parable for us. And he says this in verses 11 through 18. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, which, while a believe, while, which for a while believe and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring forth no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel or putteth it under a bed but setteth it on a candlestick. And they which enter in, that they which enter in, excuse me, may see the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not from him shall be taken, even that which he seemeth to have. Take heed, Jesus says, how ye hear. We've talked about it a little bit already, but it isn't just enough that you read the scriptures. It isn't just enough that you understand the general historical and thematic elements. It isn't enough that you can tell me the names of Jacob's sons in order. It isn't enough that you can tell me upon what mountain Moses died. It isn't enough that you can tell me the locations of the gates in the city of Jerusalem. None of that is enough. The blessing of God comes to the man, the woman, or the child who hears the word of God, who reads it, hears it, keeps it, who obeys. Obedience. To this end, Jesus says, take care, take heed how you are hearing. Take heed how you hear. Because you can hear in a manner that will simply darken you more. Because now you have the knowledge, but you haven't done anything with it. Then you can get puffed up with pride. How are you hearing this morning? Is your heart prepared to receive the instruction of the revelation of Jesus Christ? Is your heart prepared to receive the instruction of the Word of God? Are you list- How is it that we're supposed to hear? Well, Jesus gives us these scenarios. In one sense, in, in, in the one case, the devil takes the word of God away. That he snatches it from their hearts before it can even take root. In another case, there are those who fall upon the rocks, but they have no root. These are those whom the Bible says, when te- times of temptation come their way, when there is actually a choice to have to suffer a little bit for what you have heard. And we're not just talking about salvation here. This is just as true for the Christian life. That when you hear that you are supposed to do something and that something that is, that is being asked of you is going to come with a trial. And when that trial comes, you fall out from the truth because you had no root. The third, the thorns. What is this? This is that you hear something and you're glad to hear it, but 
and it takes root, but then when the cares of this life come, the cares of this life strip you from the fruit of that obedience. Are you there in your Christian life where you've heard this stuff and you say, yes, amen, when that stuff is said, and yet you've been stripped of all the fruit of the blessings of that knowledge because you've allowed the world to encroach upon the truth. And then finally, there's those who hear the word of God and with childlike faith assimilate it and say, God, I don't get it. I don't think I even like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And when you do it, you realize that it's exactly what you wanted all along. And I can't explain it. And I can give you illustration after illustration, but I can't explain it any better than that. Than that there are certain things in this life that we say, I don't like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Exercise is one of those, right? I don't like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then all of a sudden you start reaping benefits. You have more energy. You're feeling better. You're not as achy when you wake up in the morning. You're sleeping better at night. And all of a sudden, though, exercise isn't all that fun to you. Wow, you're, you're, you're benefiting from it. And then exercise can actually become something that you enjoy to where you actually enjoy the burn because you know that that burn means something is happening. Something is working. It's working. Maybe you'll never get there. But the idea being this very concept that God says, this is what's best for you. And you say, no, 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 I don't like that. But if we can get ourselves to the point where we are careful how we hear and we hear like those who uh, are, the words are not falling upon rocks and the words are not falling within thorns and the words are not being taken away by the deceits of the devil, but rather we are listening and we are hearing and we are keeping. They are the ones who receive the blessing. If you're not receiving the blessings of the word of God, you should wonder where along the line things got confused. Things got stripped away. Is it rocks? Is it thorns? Is it the devil, birds? Something got in the way of you and the truths of God's word. Find it. Remove it. I want to close with one more passage of scripture. James chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. It exhorts us into the same vein. James says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word. Receive it, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. You're fooling yourself if you're hearing it, but you're not doing it. If you're amening, but it's not real in your life, you're fooling yourself. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in the glass, looking at himself in a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The blessing is not to the one who hears, just hears. Of course, we're using the word differently than the Luke, right? Because hearing there meant Keeping. Hearing here means the words pass through. Doing is keeping. When we are hearers but not doers, that's the person who sits here every week at Legacy Baptist Church and reads their Bible along with me. And as they're reading their Bible, their Bible is their mirror and they're reading of themselves and they don't like what they see. And there, there are deficiencies 
and you look at those deficiencies and it's like the person who wakes up in the morning and he goes and he looks in the mirror and his hair's all over the place and he's got stuff in his teeth and he looks at that and he says, I'm a mess. And instead of taking care of the mess, he says, I've got to solve this problem of me being a mess. And instead of brushing his hair and brushing his teeth, he just takes down the mirror. Problem solved. Out of sight, out of mind, right? That's what James is saying. The hearer but not the doer is like a man who beholds himself in a glass and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. He straightway forgets what the word of God told him he is. The man who hears and does is the man who reads the word of God, sees who he is, and by God's grace, brushes his teeth and brushes his hair. Gets himself, deals with the problems. Makes himself right through Christ, through the Spirit of God, not by himself, not self-righteously. He, he does what Christ asks him to do. Which one are you this morning? This is where blessing is found. Not the hearer, but the doer. There's no blessing for reading or reading and knowing. There's a blessing for those who read, who hear, and who keep the Word of God. And this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Little Christ, follower of Christ, walking in His footsteps. What is it that God has been working on you? Not necessarily in this sermon. I hope, I hope you see God working. You've got something in your life. He's, he's had his thumb on it maybe for a while. You know that you're not where you should be and you're being stubborn and you love it and you want it. You say, but it's making me feel good. You say, but it's, it's, it's vindicating me. You say, but it's, it's, what, it's what I love and yet God says, I want it. It's out, may, may, maybe it's, it's that, that it's wrong. Maybe it's just it's out of balance. It needs to get out completely. Maybe it needs to be brought back under, under Christ. Whatever it might be, what is it? Are you the one that's looking at the, at the mirror of God's word? You're, you're feeling the convictions of the spirit of God and then you're going away and you're saying, oh, let's forget about that. Or are you the one who is listening, who is obeying? If you want God's blessing, if our church wants God's blessing, there's one way to it and it's not a secret. It's very plain. It's obedience to the word of God. But we all seem to have a line that we draw and we aren't willing to cross. We're willing to obey here, here, and here, but just maybe not there or there or there. And that's, we're all somewhere in there. None of us is perfect, right? Your line's here, your line's here, your line's there. Let's bump that line. Where is it, what part of your life, what facet of your life, maybe one, maybe many, is not submitted to this principle of reading, hearing, and keeping? What element of your life is not submitted to the principle of being a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word? And let's pinpoint that and let's prep our hearts. Let's get those right and let's prep our hearts to get more right as we walk through the book of the Revelation, because the Bible says, blessed is the man who, in, in context of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, reads it, hears it, and keeps it. And that's what church is for. That's what we are here to do. How are you doing today? As we begin this journey through this very important book, are you tapping into the blessing of the book? 
given not to those who read, not to those who hear, but to those who, having read and heard, keep the words of this book. True prophecy keeps present realities ever in focus. We're not just going to spend several months learning about the future. We're going to spend several months being called to make ourselves right today, to become followers of Christ in a better way today. Let's prepare our hearts to do that. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.